Good morning, good morning. All right. Okay, pull this down. Yeah, this is what I do in my church. All right. Feels like home. Now, in case you're wondering why I'm up here without my physical Bible, there's a good reason for it. I, uh, I try to annotate my Bible with notes that I, I want to leave behind for my kids and for my grandkids. And the last two trips I've been on, I've left it. So I've resolved no more. No more. I'm just taking the Bible on my phone, but we will be in God's word today. All the young people are like, yeah, dude, no big deal. All the old people are like, I don't know about that. (laughs) Not that there's any old people here. We're all very young. All right. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 1. I hope that you've taken some time to read ahead this week in the text and get a feel for all of Genesis 1. We're going to start a little bit later in Genesis 1 with our reading this morning. We're going to start in verse 26. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. And then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, And over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. And fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens. And over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth. And every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food, and it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. This is God's holy, inspired, inerrant, and infallible word. It is completely sufficient for all things pertaining to life and godliness. Amen? All right, let me pray. Father God, I am nothing. You are everything. Help me to get out of the way this morning so that your people can hear your word and have life in you. We pray this in the powerful name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. For the note takers here this morning, I have five points for you, five points, and I don't know how I did this, they all start with a D, alliteration. I didn't go to seminary, I think that's where most pastors learned how to do that, I didn't learn that, but I still found my way. Here they are, I'll give them to you again if you don't take them all right now. The five points are deity, dominion, dignity, death, and destiny. So let's get started with point number one, deity. If you lived in the ancient world, you would have more than likely lived under the rule of a king. 
And the king that you lived under the rule of would have more than likely thought of himself as a god. Now, these god kings of the ancient world, what they wanted to do was to project themselves out into their kingdoms. They, they wanted to manifest themselves everywhere in the kingdom at once. So how would they accomplish this? Well, they would create these things called idols. Remember, an idol is just a, a manifestation of one's image, right? So these kings, what they would do is they would image themselves all throughout the kingdom by placing these idols all throughout the land. And so these images, what they would do is they would serve to reinforce the dominion of the king. Pay your taxes, offer your sacrifices, and don't make me angry, right? You, you, the king is way, way far away where he lives, but you wake up every morning and you walk past a statue and you remember you are under his authority. But something strange is found here in Genesis 1. As God begins to tell us the story of everything here in Genesis 1, he begins by presenting himself as a king. Now, you won't find the word king in there, but that's what's happening here in the text. Remember, in the ancient world, a king would speak and his will would come to pass. You know, the queen just died, and if you know anything about the British monarchy, you know that they're essentially... They don't really do anything. You know, they don't really have any power. But in the ancient world, it wasn't like that. The king would say, you know, uh, conquer that land or build that pyramid or get me another wife. And, and everyone would have to listen. That's what you would do. You're the king. You speak things into existence. You bring your will to pass by the power of your word. Now, in Genesis 1, God, the high king of heaven, what does he do? He speaks and when he speaks, his will comes to pass. God says, let there be light. And there's light. And you can read through Genesis 1, and you can go through, if you're the kind of person who likes to mark up your Bibles like me, you just go, and God said, and God said, and God said. Is this messing with you guys? Uh -uh. And then it happened. There we go. Here we go. A little adjustment. There we go. But in creation, can you guys hear me? Okay. But in creation, we find that the God of the Bible is very different than the kings of the ancient world. He is not merely the ruler of some obscure kingdom of the Fertile Crescent. He's not merely the leader of some people group in some backwater locale. He's not even merely the king of the whole world. He's the king, the sovereign king, of the entire universe. God speaks in heaven and earth and all of the cosmos come into existence. And he does this by the sovereign power of his word. And so in Psalm 33, we read the psalmist reflecting on this creation. He says, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. And by the breath of his mouth, all their hosts. And if you've seen any of these pictures coming back from these telescopes lately, all the hosts. I mean, that's just like trillions and trillions of stars and suns. And, and God created all these. No science people come up to me afterwards and say, well, technically a star is a sun. I know, but you get the point. Psalm 33 continues, he gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. Let all of the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. Now here's where things get interesting. Let's look back at our Bibles. Look back at verse 27. 
Let's, let's look at this God who created all things. Verse 27, so God, the one who created the, the galaxies and the quasars and the ocean deeps and the mountain heights, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. When God tells us that we are created in his image, he's saying that I, the king of the universe, am projecting my divine image out into my kingdom through you. You human beings are like my idols. If you stop and think about it, it it's, it's really an incredible anomaly that in the ancient world where every deity had an image, right? Just think about the Egyptian gods, right? Just, every deity had an image. Yahweh, the God of the Israelites, the God of the Hebrew Bible, he doesn't have an image. Even in the tabernacle, you know, the, the traveling temple, the tent, and then later in the actual temple where God's presence is said to be with his people, where all of the other religions love to put the statues of the images of their God in these places, there is no image of Yahweh. Well, there's the Ark of the Covenant, you say. Well, the Ark of the Covenant represents where he sits, but there's no picture of God. It's all representational. Why is there no image of Yahweh in this ancient world? There is. It's in you and me. We are the image of the invisible God. Now we know that we shouldn't make idols of the Lord for all different kinds of reasons, right? God is spirit. We can't translate spirit into stone or wood. We also know that we can never capture all of who God is in an image, no matter how impressive or robust or three-dimensional, no matter how avant-garde and talented the artist that you know in Austin is. He could never capture the fullness of the essence of Yahweh in an image. And, and all of that's theologically true. Yes and amen. But another reason why we don't make images of God is because we don't have to. He already did that. He is the perfect artist. And the image that he has created in mankind is all that we need. To try to come along behind that and create another image just to say, God, the image that you made in humans is not sufficient to capture your glory. Now, Protestants, of whom we are the foremost, amen? Protestants, I didn't hear an amen, I'm worried. <laughs> amen? amen? All right, all right. Now, Protestants, we are said to be against images in worship. Well, n no, not really. We love to behold the image of God in worship. That's why we're all here this morning. We love to gather together to worship God and behold his glory in other image bearers. We are opposed to some kind of imagery. We're opposed to man-made imagery, but we don't mind at all. As a matter of fact, we love the images that God has created in one another. Now, you've probably noticed that the language of of being in the image of God isn't all that Scripture says. There are a couple of other places where it says that we are created in God's image and likeness. That's right. 
we've, we kind of covered the image stuff, and we're going to come back and talk about that a, a little bit more in a minute. But let me, let me talk about the likeness. The, the likeness, it refers to that part of our human natures which mirrors the nature of God. Now notice I said mirror, it's not the exact same thing, but the general idea is this. God is a creating God and he creates us to be creators. So if you're here and you're an artist, you're like, why do I just have this desire to create in me? Well, because you're creating the image of a God who's an artist, right? God loves, we love. As well as God? No, but we do. God is logical. He created human beings to be Logical. So the likeness of God is seen in the human capacity to appreciate beauty, for example, or it's seen in our rational mind that we possess that goes beyond mere base level animal instinct, right? Uh, the likeness of God is seen in our capacity for worship and, and wonder and our ability to delight in beauty. Think about God, Genesis 1. He steps back and he sees everything that he's made and he says, oh, it's very good. He's enjoying the beauty of creation. We can do that because we're created in his likeness. So the likeness of God refers to our nature, who we are in our being, whereas the image of God is more functional. The image of God is more functional. God has made us like himself so that we can do things, so that we can image him in our actions, which leads me to point number two. Dominion, where, we're, where we are really going to explore this concept of imaging God as an action. Point number two, dominion. Now, if you like to keep stuff simple like I do, good news. I'm going to distill all the point two for you down into one idea. The way that human beings exercise, or excuse me, the way that human beings image God in this world is by exercising dominion. The way that human beings image God on the earth is by exercising dominion. And, and how exactly do we do that? Well, we do it by subduing creation. Let's go ahead and go back to Genesis 1. And let's, let's take a moment and look at verse 28. So right after verse 27, which says we're created in God's image. Then there's verse 28 where we read, And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. What we see here is that God places man in nature as part of creation, that's true, but he also calls us to rule over creation. That is what makes human beings distinct from the rest of creation is that we have this call to rule over creation as God's image bearers. Now the word dominion that's used here in the text, it's a word that in English it can kind of give us the heebie-jeebies, right? Oh we live in an era that's very suspicious of authority, you know. And I get it. We live in a messed up world. Very often those who have had dominion have exercised it in such a way as to do a lot of damage. But we would do well to remember that what we learn from this text is that God gave Adam and Eve dominion over nature before the fall. Before sin entered the world, God said it is a very good thing for human beings to exercise dominion over the earth. In the beginning, dominion was a good, 
productive, life-giving exercise. In exercise properly, dominion can still be a very good, life-giving, productive exercise. If you've had good, godly parents, you understand that. If you've had a righteous boss at work, if you've ever, just by, I mean, just sheer luck, had like a good politician rule over you, right? Uh, There's no such thing as luck, but you get what I'm saying. You understand what it's like to prosper and to thrive under good dominion. Now let's talk a little bit about this word subdue, because the way that we exercise dominion is by subduing creation. That's what verse 28 says. Now, when you look up the word subdue in, in your English thesaurus, right, you'll find some synonyms there that make subdue sound like not, not the best idea. You find words like conquer, and defeat, suppress, crush, quell, uh, not good. But in Genesis word, uh, excuse me, in Genesis 1, the, the word that we have translated as subdue in the English language, it simply means to bring under control. To, to bring under control. The, the idea is to impose one's vision. So, so consider the, the metaphor of a garden. A family moves into a house with a big backyard, and I guess here in Austin that would have to be way far away. Right, you move 45 minutes away, you have enough money to buy a house with a big backyard. And the family that has this backyard, they, they, they have a green thumb and they like to eat fresh vegetables. And so they want to grow their tomatoes and zucchini and squash and their watermelon. So what do they do? Well, they subdue their little plot of earth behind their house. They impose their vision on the soil. They bring nature under their control. They chop down the trees and they grind the stumps and they pull up the roots and they kill the weeds and they put varmint control in and they build a fence and they till the soil and they plant the seeds and they water it and eventually they have a beautiful, life-giving, productive garden. When a family does this, they are exercising dominion on the earth. They are imaging God in the way that they have subdued nature to produce life. And this is a, a microcosm of God's good vision for all of mankind on the earth. Just flip on over from Genesis 1 to Genesis 2. In case you're wondering, oh man, or you're, maybe you're thinking, Sean, that, that, that garden analogy was really good. How did you ever come up with that? Ah, it's just right here in Genesis 2. Starting in verse 15, And the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. God could have unleashed Adam onto all the earth, but instead he gave him a little piece, a little piece of creation, and not as little as your backyard, but little comparatively. And he said, this is going to be the place where you begin to image me by exercising dominion. And he says, this is a very good thing. Let me just pause and say that again. When human beings image God by exercising dominion and subduing the earth, it is a very good thing. Go back and look at chapter 1, verse 28. Chapter 1, verse 28. Right as God begins to give them this mandate to exercise dominion, it says, and God blessed them. This call to exercise dominion and subdue the earth is the fruit of the holy blessing 
of God. Now, obviously we can talk about how sin has affected this and and in many ways ruined this, and we are going to talk about that. But even in a post-fall world, a post-Genesis 3 world, we can still see man's capacity for dominion through subdual everywhere. We see it in the arts, painting, sculpture, cinema, photography. We see it with engineering, pharmacology, agriculture, metallurgy, carpentry, animal husbandry, banking, geology, geography, and arithmetic. Oh my. In all of these fields, what we are doing as human beings is imaging God by exercising our royal duty and privilege to subdue the earth for the sake of flourishing. So, Think about this as you live your life. The next time that you handle a brick or put on a polyester shirt or put gas in your car or read a book or build the shed or charge your cell phone or look something up on Google or check your bank account or decorate your living room or plant a garden or build a house or just walk into a room that's air-conditioned. Remember that the world exists as you know it today because human beings are driven by something deep, deep, deep down in our souls that calls us to exercise dominion over nature. Consider how this makes us distinct from the rest of creation. Cows have four stomachs. That's an interesting fact. Big deal. But they don't possess the desire to create. Grass does not have the capacity for imagination and learning and planning Dogs do not have the skill to craft or the desire to create for the sake of beauty. Trees do not possess determination. The stars do not have the capacity to wonder. The rocks cannot enjoy the works of their creator. Human beings do the kinds of things we do because of who we are in our very nature. We are created in the likeness of God. Now listen, uh, these truths, these biblical truths, it's like a sharp instrument, right? A sharp instrument in the hand of a fool is very, different, is very dangerous. In, in the hand of an expert, a sharp instrument can be used to do a lot of good. So a fool will hear what I'm saying this morning and he will gloat over these truths like a petulant child. Aha, I I felt like I was in charge, right? I thought I had to be the most important thing on this earth. I'm the king of the world. I'm going to subdue everything and I'm going to subdue it hard, right? But the wise man will hear these truths and will understand that they must be handled with the greatest of care. The wise man and the wise woman will understand that the world ultimately belongs to God and that as human beings we are merely stewards of God's creation. Glorious stewards, yes, but stewards nonetheless. A wise man will consider this doctrine of dominion as a very weighty responsibility. And he will say to himself, Self, I have great authority and power, but it has not been given to me for my good and my glory. It has been given to me for the glory of God and for the good of others. Now, before exiting the room of point two, I want to dance around the room and point out a few more things. I want to show you some things that we should consider in light of this doctrine. I can't can't talk about everything that could be said here, but I want to point out a few more things. 
First, and you could, if you're a note taker, you could call this a subpoint if you want. First, I want to point out the fact that mankind, according to God's word, is not a blight on the face of the earth. You know, some of the environmentalism in our day has led to some rhetoric that implies, if not states explicitly, that human beings are a curse on the earth. One CNN headline reads like this, The planet is being consumed by humans. Another headline, Humanity is on a collision course with nature. 17 exclamation marks. Now, can human beings do damage to nature? Of course we can, and of course we do, and of course we will continue to do so in the future. That's what sin does. It causes our good design to be corrupted in certain ways. But that does not change the fundamental fact that when human beings subdue the earth well, they are doing their God-given duty. This world was designed by God to be used by humanity. And even when mankind exercises dominion poorly, as we often do, we must still reject the lie that says that mankind is more of a burden than a blessing to this planet. Now, let's get a little more practical and a little less theoretical. In a fallen world, there will always be trade-offs when it comes to our stewardship of creation. There are always going to be trade-offs. Don't let any utopian vision fool you that says we can get to the place where we can constantly consume energy and it will never hurt anyone or anything. That's a fairy tale. There will always be a mixed bag of flourishing on the one hand and then sinful exploitation on the other hand. There will always be gain and loss. And I'll just give you one example. Fossil fuels. Fossil fuels are, on the whole, a net positive for humanity. And it's not even close. It's not even close what fossil fuels have done for humanity. Listen to one author as he writes these words. He says, access to fossil fuels has been responsible for lifting billions of people out of abject poverty, making inhospitable environments livable, and supplying the goods and services that underlie modern standards of living. And when he says modern standards of living, he doesn't mean like your ability to buy a thousand dollar boots, right? He's referring to like clothing and medicine and transportation and utilities, which helps do a bunch of other things like increase access to medical care and educational opportunities and, and so on and so forth. So assuming that's true, and if you disagree, I'm sure you'll come and find me after the service, right? But assuming that's true, we know that the burning of fossil fuels is not without some consequence in nature, right? How much? How severe? Well, that's for a, a different day and a different conversation. But there is a trade-off, and this will always be the case. Electric cars are going to save us. Where does that electricity come from? Right? There's always going to be a trade-off in the way that we exercise dominion by subduing the earth in a post-Genesis 3 world. I think that's all we have to say about that. Let's move on to point number three, dignity. Dignity. If you sit down and read Genesis chapter 1 in one sitting, hopefully you'll feel the really incredible design of the author. You'll feel this 
crescendo effect. It starts in verse 1, God created the heavens and the earth. That's kind of like the thesis statement. And then in verse 2, God begins to unpack what that's like. And there's three days of forming, and then there's three days of filling, and it's this really amazing thing. But even as God begins to create life, there's a crescendo. He, he begins down here with animal life, and then he creates, excuse me, plant life, and then he goes up and creates animal life. And then at the very apex of creation, he creates us human beings in his image. In Genesis 1, we learn that human beings are unique amongst the rest of God's creation. Why? Because nothing else in the universe images God. Now, because of our unique status in creation, we Christians believe that human beings have inherent, notice that word, inherent, we'll come back and talk about it, but for the third time, inherent value, dignity, and worth. Now, if you've got like the engineer brain, don't spend too much time trying to differentiate between value, dignity, and worth. That's just my way of trying to pile a bunch of words on top of one another to communicate this very good idea that human life is very, very, very valuable in God's sight. It is more valuable than plant life. It is more valuable than animal life. I was on a bus tour the other day at the San Diego Zoo and the guy started the tour off and he said, you know, mice, elephants, humans, you know, we're all the same. Our lives are equally valuable and only when we come to believe this will we save the planet. I don't know about that. You guys remember Harambe when he got shot at the zoo? Right? All the animal rights activists, how dare you say that that baby's life is worth more than the life of Harambe the gorilla? And I'm thinking, I'll kill 10,000 Harambes to save one human life. Why? Because of what we learn in Genesis 1. Uh, gorillas are not created in the, in the image of God. Human beings are. And yes, it is true that sin has made a, a mess of the way that we image God. But even after the fall, our lives are still inherently valuable. Listen to Genesis 9, and if you know how the story of Genesis goes, things are really, really, really bad in Genesis 9. And yet we read these words, Whoever sheds human blood, by humans shall their blood be shed. Death penalty, right? Why? What is God's rationale for, or in light of this, in the image of God has God made mankind. This was after the fall. Even after the fall, God says, because you image me, your life is supremely valuable. And now I'd like to just explore some of the implications of this truth. Here's the first one. Because our dignity is inherent in us in creation, right? Like, nobody gives us that dignity. Like, you know, you're, you're a poor person and you come before the king and he knights you and now you have the royal dignity of the king. No, no, no. Our dignity is given to us in the second we're born. As God's knitting us in the womb, we have that dignity. But because it is inherent in us, it cannot be removed by anything outside of us in creation. So, you know, the Nazis can come and they can claim that the Jews aren't fully human because of their bad eugenic science. And they can say, therefore, in light of the fact that they're not humans, their death is of no moral consequence and we're going to kill a whole bunch of them. But all of that bad eugenic science and all of that bad worldview stuff does not change the fact that every single human being, including every Jew that died in the Holocaust, 
is created in the image of God. Additionally, animal rights activists can claim that animals are just as valuable as human beings, but they are wrong. We swap mosquitoes. We put poison out for rats. We shoot cows and we grind them up and eat them for hamburgers. Amen. And none of this is morally dubious. Now, let me pause and be clear. We might have some dog moms in the room. I'm not saying that it's okay to abuse or to otherwise harm animals. Proverbs chapter 12, verse 10. Whoever is righteous has regard for the life of his beast. Or even you consider Matthew 6. Jesus paints this picture of a God who is intimately involved in the lives of all of his creation, right? He, he begins by pointing to the plant life, make you think of Genesis 1, the grass and the lilies of the field, and oh, look how God cares for them and provides for them, even though they're going to be thrown in the fires, you know. And then uh, look at the birds of the air, right? So now we have animal life. That's the second part of the crescendo. And he says, and doesn't God take care of them? And then he goes on to human life, even us, we of little faith. So it seems like God cares for grass and lilies and birds, and I bet he even cares for cats. I can't be certain. I'll find out one day. (laughs) And all of this is true, and yet we must remember that God's good and general love and care for all of creation does not mean that all of creation is equally valuable in his eyes. Humans have unique value and worth. Now, the next thing I'd like for us to consider is the idea that no matter what has happened to you or no matter what you have done, you have not had the image of God erased in you. I hope we understand that. I think about drug addicts. I was a drug addict before I got saved. And I think about these NA meetings that I I went to for so long. And 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 if you've been helped by NA, this is not like an all-out attack on it. But just consider one aspect of it. You always, you go up at the beginning of every sharing time and you say, Hi, my name is Sean. I'm an addict. Right? And, And what are you doing there? You're kind of creating an identity for yourself. And that's the whole design of NA and AA is that you have a disease and you can never get rid of it and it's going to be with you for life and this is your identity. And what I see is so many addicts who are being trained to think that this is who they are at their very core. This is what distinguishes and defines them. And very often when I talk to them, I just say, no, that's, that's actually not even close you have no idea. That's, that's such a, an inglorious vision of who God created you to be. Even in your sin, you are still not defined by your addiction. Maybe you're sitting here this morning and you're a felon. And you've committed some kind of a crime that you were called inmate number whatever for so long that when you think about yourself, you can only think about yourself, yourself in those terms. Or maybe you committed a crime and you didn't get caught but it lingers in your heart, in your conscience, keeps you up at night, and you just, even though you've come to Christ and you trust in him, you still just keep on defining yourself by that one sin. And I don't know what that is for you, but you know. Maybe you were abused by a boyfriend or a neighbor or an uncle, and you just cannot escape this idea that you are worthless because of what was done to you. Well, no, friend, even at your lowest point of degradation, you are more than what you have suffered. You are an image bearer of the Most High God. 
Maybe right now you're sitting and you're thinking that you're struggling with some kind of sin issue in your life, and that's completely consumed you. You can't even see who you are in Christ because you just can't stop struggling with this one sin issue. Friend, and if, especially if you're in Christ, your sin does not define you. When I think about many of my LGBT friends, one of the things that makes my heart sad for them is that their whole identity is, is wrapped up in their sexual preferences. And I just think, man, what a terribly low view of what it means to be a human being. That your sexual preferences now fill the entire frame of your identity and existence. And I've told many of them, you were not created to be defined by these impulses and urges. And they can be redeemed. Friends, the doctrine of what theologians call the imago dei, right? This doctrine of the uh, image of God. It is one of the most practically important doctrines in all of Scripture. If the doctrine of the imago dei is true, then all sorts of other things must be false. If the doctrine of the image of God is good, then all kinds of other things must be bad. If the doctrine of the image of God is beautiful, then all kinds of other things must necessarily be ugly. Let's begin with the most obvious application. You think about murder. Murder is wrong. Why? Well, for all sorts of reasons. You don't have the right to take a life that you didn't create. We can just kind of go down the list. But think about it from this angle. Murder is a direct assault on the image of God. So, it doesn't matter what kind of murder we're talking about, it's bad. Assisted suicide, what is that? That's medicalized murder. Suicide, what is that? That's self-murder. You think about, in my church I called this classic murder, and they made fun of me relentlessly for this, right? But just first degree, second degree, third degree murder, all bad. You're assaulting the image of God. Abortion, all bad. You're assaulting the image of God. You're doing it at a very early stage of development, but you are assaulting the image of God nonetheless. Think about what this means for racial superiority. If the doctrine of the image of God is true, then any kind of racial superiority must be off limits. In the first chapter of the great American novel, The Great Gatsby, one of the characters, Tom Buchanan, he asks this. He says, have you read the Rise of the Colored Empires by this man Goddard. Well, it's a fine book and everybody ought to read it. Yes, the idea uh, is if we look out, uh, the white race will be um, utterly submerged. It's all very scientific stuff. It's been proved. This, this fellow Goddard, he's worked out the whole thing. You see, it, it's up to us, we who are the dominant race, to watch out. Or, or those other races will have control of things. The idea is that we're Nordics, I am and you are, and we've, we've all produced this thing called civilization and, and science and art and all of that. Do you see? One of the things that I tell the members of our church is that the orthodoxy of science today may end up very well being the shame of science tomorrow. A hundred years ago, the science was settled on the question of eugenics, racial superiority, Eugenics had proven that the white race was superior, and if you doubt it, here are some skull measurements that I can show you, that kind of thing. These days, anyone who says anything like that would be burned at the stake. But why? I mean, if the secular humanists are right, if we are really just conglomerations of dust on a bigger conglomeration of dust floating around in the black abyss of space, if we really are just descendants 
of an atom or of nothing exploding and turning into something. And then there was a, some kind of flotsam in a pool that was struck by lightning. And then that turned into a salamander. And then that turned into a gorilla. And then that turned into a hominid. And then here you are today. If that worldview is true, why would it be wrong to think that one racial group is superior to another? This group went over here and adapted this way and they had more mental development and this group went over here and they had less because of various resources. Whenever I find people who don't believe in God or who don't ascribe to the Christian worldview who say, you know, I could never believe that one race is superior to another. I go, really? Because it seems to make perfect sense with your... Now, now my worldview, outlandish, it's preposterous. God created Adam and Eve. We're all descended from the same parents. There is no kind of racial superiority. There's no room for that in the Christian worldview. Why? Because we are all equal in value, dignity, and worth. Young and old, rich and poor, black and white, smart and dumb, educated, illiterate, abled, disabled, all equally valued. Consider what the doctrine of the Imago Dei means for slavery. We read in this morning's text that God has given us dominion over the plants of the field and over the birds of the sky and over the animals. Yes. Is there anywhere in this text where you see that man has given dominion over men? I can't find it. Now, that doesn't mean that there's no such thing as authority structures, right? Parents have authority over children and and, and husbands and wives, headship and submission in society. I think all of that's part of God's good design. What I'm talking about is this idea that says, you are my permanent chattel. You are my property. And now I, a fellow fallen human being, have the ability to ascribe to you your value, dignity, and worth. That, friends, is foreign to the God of Scriptures. And we could go on and on. We could talk about self-harm and cutting. We could talk about treating the poor in inhumane ways. But the point is this. To any of my unbelieving friends who may be here this morning, when you hear this doctrine and really when you listen to this story, you should hope that this story is true. You should want this story to be true. Because if this story is not true, then your ethical feet are planted firmly in thin air. All, all you really have to adjudicate, and by the way, what I found is it blows my mind, all these people who reject the God of morality and turn to the world, they're still very moral people, very strong opinions about sin and righteousness. They just think different things are sinful. And you know, I was talking to this lady in San Diego, and she said, I used to be a Christian, oh, but they're so exclusive. Oh, I hate them so bad. Oh, I just want to be inclusive. And I was like, eh, wow, you seem pretty exclusive, right? They're still so righteous. And actually, I got to the point where I was talking with this young woman, and I was like, you know, apart from these things that we're talking about this morning, all, what do you have to adjudicate, adjudicate your ethics and morality? Well, you have, like, utilitarianism, which says, like, if we can get just a few more people happy than sad, then we've made the right moral choice. Friends, this is outrageous. So if you're the kind of person who gets really riled up when you think about, oh, all the injustices of, of, of the human condition and racism and the cop using excessive force and the atrocities of history, if those loom large in your mind, if you say, I, I thirst for justice and righteousness, 
if you don't know Christ, let me just stop and ask you, why do you think that is? Why do you care about these things? Could it be that you know deep, deep down that human beings are created in the image of God? You know, it's funny, all throughout history, whenever you see some kind of significant pattern when it comes to atrocities, the underlying worldviews and philosophies that, that sort of back these atrocities, they all aim at doing the same thing, erasing the image of God. So you just take Hitler, for example, right? How can you, how can you possibly justify killing six million Jews? Well, you say that they're not fully human. They're not far along on the evolutionary journey, you know, we are the Aryans, and, and there you go, and so you can kill them. Or you can move to Africa, right? Because remember, white people aren't the only ones who commit atrocities, right? You have the Hutus and the Tutsis, right? And, and how did the Hutus justify killing the Tutsis? Well, they're cockroaches, you see. They're not human beings. And once you can take away their humanness, you can do whatever you want to them and, and not feel bad because they're like the plants of the field and the, the beasts, you take race-based chattel slavery in the United States. What do we say? We said that they were not fully human. You take abortion. How can we justify killing 70 million human beings in our country? Well, we say that they're a clump of cells. They're not humans. I have a lot more to say about this, but I am preaching long, so let me move on to point number four. Death. Death. The author of Ecclesiastes, in chapter 7, verse 29, he says this. This alone I have found, that God made man upright. Amen. But they have sought out many schemes. You see, we human beings, we are like God, but we are not God. There's a fundamental distinction between the creator and his creation, even if that creation is created in his image. And yet what sin does is it comes along and it encourages us to blur the distinction, to blur the lines. Sin says, hey, listen, uh, Adam, Eve, instead of representing God, you can be like God. Instead of imaging God, you can replace God. God. Instead of imaging God, you can try to recreate God into your own image. That's why I love reading like these Roman myths. I'm just reading about all these false gods, and I'm like, oh, these are all just humans, you know? What do they do? They just created all these gods that are hungry and thirsty, and they have these sex drives, and they're malicious, and, and all these. They're just humans. That's what we do. We create God in our own image and likeness because of sin. And when we live like this, we turn the very good kingdom of earth upside down. We bring a curse upon creation. Instead of cultivating life, what do we do? We bring about death. Friends, I, I, hope, you, I hope you take some time, maybe even this afternoon, to pause and to consider the fact that you were created to be kings and queens on the earth. God created you to be his representatives, his vice regents. And yet here we are finding ourselves everywhere in chains. We were created to have dominion over creation. And yet we let creation have dominion over us. I was having a conversation with a brother in my church recently who just cannot stop smoking cigarettes. And I'm not condemning, you know, I'm trying to help him work through that. And maybe you're struggling with that here and maybe this will be helpful for you. I said, let me see one of your cigarettes. And by the way, I used to smoke two packs a day. <laughs> uh, 
I held up the Newport and I opened it and I just showed him the leaves inside. I said, this, these leaves, dried up leaves, these have dominion over you. It's not supposed to be like this. You were supposed to have dominion over the grass of the field. We were created to be fruitful and to multiply and to make babies to the glory of God. And now we have so many people under the age of 30, 30 sitting alone in dark rooms watching people fornicate on their computers. We were created to live free and abundant lives. And now because of crime, we house human beings in cages like animals because of their antisocial behaviors. Sin has caused us to not only lose dominion over much of creation, but even dominion over ourselves. Our flesh wages war against us. And how often do we lose that battle? Think about what the book of James says in chapter 3, verse 7. James, uh, speaking right out of Genesis 1. He says, all kinds of animals and birds and reptiles and sea creatures are being tamed and have been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. Human beings can cross oceans. We can fly to the moon, if you think we really did that. We can explore the deep. We can build towers as tall as the sky itself. But we cannot control this tiny little piece of flesh in our mouth. And if we were to stop the story right here, it would sound like mankind has become nothing more than mediocre rulers making a mess out of everything in God's good kingdom. But the story does not end here. Point number five, destiny. Point number five, destiny. Human beings, we live with a strange kind of spiritual dissonance. On the one hand, we feel like we are great, glorious, majestic creatures in some way that we can't quite put our finger on. But we also simultaneously feel this deep and abiding sense that something is terribly wrong with us. And this is exactly what we would expect to feel if the gospel were true. Why? Because the gospel says that we are worth more than we can ever know because we are God's image bearers and because he has loved us in his son Jesus Christ. But the gospel also says that because of sin, we are ruined in a way that we can't even begin to comprehend. We have rebelled against our king. We have spurned his glory in us and we are deserving of death and hell forever. And just to be clear, the reason why we're deserving of this death and hell, it's not because we've committed an, an oopsie daisy, you know. It, it's not like we accidentally stumbled into sin and, oh, I really wanted to image you well on the earth, God, and project your glory, but I, I, I couldn't do it. I'm not a skilled craftsman. No, we chose outright rebellion. Our father Adam sinned and we have been following in his path ever since. But then there's Jesus, right? You see, human beings, we were created to be these representatives of the high king of heaven, but we failed to do our job. 
And so what happens? The high king of heaven comes to earth himself. In Jesus, God, the second person of the Trinity, emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, by being born. Listen to this language. I just, the Apostle Paul is just a man who is shot through with the Bible. You know, you try to count all the Old Testament illusions in his writings, and you can't do it because it's just in his bones. Jesus came being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The New Testament teaches us that when Jesus came to earth, he came in the image of the invisible God. That language brings us all the way back to Genesis 1. And during his life on earth, Jesus did image God. He imaged God perfectly. He imaged God in every way that Adam failed to image God. He imaged God in every way that you fail to image God. He exercised dominion over all the earth and its inhabitants. He subdued everyone and everything, but listen, not with violence, not by force, but through sacrificial love. He did not exercise dominion for his own selfish gain, but rather for the good of others and for the glory of his Father. And now he's calling all men everywhere to repent of their sins, to stop trying to recreate God in your image, and to just accept the new image that he is offering you in his Son. Listen to the way Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, Just as we have been born in the image of the man of dust, Adam, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven, Jesus. You know, the Bible describes the the sanctification process as this very slow infusion, right? God is infusing us with his own image. Listen to the way that 2 Corinthians says this. Paul says, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image. What image are we being transformed into? You, me, everyone in this room who belongs to Christ. The image of his son. From one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the spirit. So the spirit that God has placed in you is slowly working his image in your life. And we're not even done yet. (laughs) Uh, If you are in Christ by faith, This is your destiny. If you're wondering why, like, the fifth D, was it just so he could have the five Ds, perfect alliteration? No, I'm I'm using this word destiny because if you are in Christ, this is your destiny. Listen to Romans 8, 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. That is, he planned your destiny in eternity's past. And what is your destiny? To be conformed to the image of his Son. You were already made in the image of God, but that image was ruined by sin. What are we going to do? Christ came as the perfect image of God, and now if you repent of your sins and trust in Christ, you are being recreated into his image. Not only so, but you are united with Christ. You are one with him. So even as you continue to sin in the sanctification process, when God looks at you, he doesn't see your broken image. He just sees the image of his son. Now, 
if this is true, it should mean something for the way that we live our lives. It should mean something for the way that we parent. It should mean something for the way that we interact with our coworkers, the way that we worship God together on Sunday. You are once again a vice regent. You have once again become a king and a queen on the earth in Christ Jesus. This is why Paul tells the Colossians, listen to the language he uses. He says, put off the old self. Put on the new self. Listen to this language. Which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Friends, not only is God by his spirit shaping you into the image of his son, but he's empowering you to be able to contribute to this transformation by putting off and putting on. Finally, friends, you should know that the story of the image of God does not end with you. I mean, that's great, right? Like, whew, okay, I was a bad image bearer, but God made a way in Christ for that to be fixed. Moving forward, I've been predestined, right? That's really good. Of course it was me. It had to be me. No. God has predestined people from all people and all nations and all tongues and all tribes throughout all of history until he comes back to come to himself and to be conformed once again into his glorious image. So as you leave here today, remember that it is not good enough for you to merely glory in the fact that you have been remade. You have been given a task You have been given a mission to go out and preach the gospel and call people to be remade into who they were supposed to be. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for telling us exactly who we are. When we lay our heads down at night, we don't have to enter into existential dread trying to understand ourselves. We are who you said we are. We are who you have made us to be. We are united to your son, Jesus Christ. And every good and true and beautiful thing about him is now also true of us because we are in him. We are unworthy and our hearts are full of thanksgiving. In his name we pray, amen.